morning and welcome to Rising. We have an incredible show for you today. Alimi, who's on deck? <laughs> We're going to talk about UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson's resignation, as well as the DACA case that heard arguments yesterday. And we'll discuss the New York Times branding of the new Texas Congresswoman Myra Flores as a far-right Latina. But first, we actually have some good news for you today. Is that Could that possibly be true? I know. The Hill is reporting that gas futures fell more than 10% Tuesday and are down 22% since June, raising hopes that gas prices could take a tumble in the coming weeks. Business Insider reports that gas prices have fallen modestly for the last three weeks as consumption for fuel hits its lowest point for this time of the year since 2014. According to one expert energy analyst, we could see thousands of stations in the South falling back under $4 a gallon in places like South Carolina, Georgia, Mississippi, Louisiana, and more. Now, the current average for gas prices in the U.S. is $4.80 a gallon, down from $4.88 a week ago, still elevated compared to the year-ago average of $3.13, which is just a massive jump. But, hey, yeah. it's coming down a little bit. So, I, I got to give uh, Biden some credit. That? Okay, I've you been— think so? I'm going to give him some credit. I got I to gotta be fair. I got to be reasonable to lend to credibility. I've criticized them a lot, and especially with the gas rising and the inflation and not feeling like they were doing anything and it's going to get worse and a recession's coming. So if I see you drop, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give that to him. I could see you're, well, you're not going to Well, I just don't these. know that it sounds like it's, okay, enough, enough people are, people are not uh, rushing the pumps anymore. Yeah. So that brings the price down a little bit. That, that factors out of his control. But okay, fine. It, 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 if we're, I guess if we're going to some of the factors were out right. of control to, to begin with. He gets blamed. So, so we got to give him some of the gets, credit. Yeah, I guess. Right. It's still, I mean, it's still so high though. It's no. Do you I remember mean, when gas was? Uh, well, you're a little bit younger than I am. Well, uh, I'm quite also a bit from the Bahamas, and our gas is much more expensive. So I can never remember y'all's low prices. Yeah, when uh, when I started driving in the uh, in the mid aughts, I think the I think it was under the mid aughts. Uh, yes, <laughs> we we freaked out when the price went above like. Two dollars a gallon. Two dollars. Yeah. Gas in the Bahamas has always been above like five dollars since. Really? My, yeah, my whole time of mm. life. Yeah. So. Well, but does it take like not very long to drive from one end of the island? And I have no idea how large the Bahamas are. This, so Nassau, the island I'm from in the Bahamas, is 21 by seven miles long. It's not a. Okay, it's that's not a big, not very big. It's not a big island, but <laughs> we have to drive everywhere. There's no public transportation is not the means, so people got to go everywhere. You do feel it, and the minimum wage is like five dollars twenty five cents. So the gas being that. We felt it. So I've never known it to be particularly low, but I understand problems are relative. That doesn't change or diminish the seriousness of what the gas prices are here right now in America. Well, speaking of President Biden's response to high gas prices, yesterday he weighed in on inflation and the gas issue <laughs> while he was in Ohio and blamed, who else? Vladimir Putin. We got a long way to go because of inflation, because of the, I call it the Putin tax increase. Putin because of gasoline and all that grain he's keeping from being able to get to the market. Now I'm fighting like hell to lower costs on things that you talk about around your kitchen table. No, I won't. Putin, Putin, Putin. Uh, meanwhile, those in Biden's camp are growing more and more frustrated over the president's lack of action on Roe, gun control, rising costs of gas, food, other goods that have frustrated the public for months, because it's not just, it's, and it's ridiculous to put it all mm -hmm. on what Russia is doing. Yes, what Russia started this military conflict with Ukraine, yeah. and that was bad, and that does bear some responsibility, but then our policy response 
to the invasion of Ukraine. It, it, it impacts we it. Put all, we put uh, uh, embargoes and, and sanctions and such things on Russian products. Didn't did not affect Russia very much at all, from no, what we can yeah, tell. Yeah, did Russia, not, they, they're, they're Russia in, kept on trucking. Right. <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> what they, their export prices are up because uh, because that's because the, these sanctions never work. They yeah. never work. So maybe they, maybe they worked once. I don't know. Maybe sometimes they work. They don't seem to ever work. Yeah. Uh, and so it's not hurting Russia. It's just hurting us. Right. So you can't say it's just Putin when, it, it, yes, it's Putin, but then, yeah. then the policy of the U.S. government to continue this conflict and to to send more weapons to Ukraine and all of that. I'm sympathetic to the people of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't want them to be conquered. But do the American people, are the American people willing to pay high prices to, ha- to have this conflict going indefinitely? And I don't think that's the question they've been asking. Like, maybe they yeah. should. Ha- I feel like there's been a little bit of an avoidance of that question and determine what is public support for this. It seemed, and don't get me wrong, I, I feel like initially there was a large outcry for Ukraine, and I think people were very in support, maybe in larger numbers, for going and doing something. Mm-hmm. I would be curious to see now how the country responds now in the wake of inflation and a possible right. recession and see if they still feel the same way about that. That, that move. And I guess for, in terms of Biden saying he's fighting, he's fighting like hell to do something about gas prices. I guess I want to know fighting like hell, how? Right. Because every time we've discussed this and we've discussed the Biden statement, it's just him, you know, right. last time, well, first he blamed Putin. And then the last time we, we addressed it and he had a statement, it was blaming the, the gas companies themselves or maybe like the right. small owners of the gas stations. Or Right. Saying everybody's got to sacrifice because it's a war effort. Right. Like, really? It's a war effort. Where was the who voted for a war? Who? Where was that? When was that vote held? Were the American people consulted on right. this? No, no one signed right. on for, onto this. Yeah, and it's just being done. It's it's being done without without the consent of the governed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there has to be a lot more concern for working class people. I think it's very mm-hmm. easy. Don't, and don't get me wrong. I'm very for ideological commitments. I am not pro uh, Russia Ukraine. Uh, Uh, invading Ukraine and what's happening. But I think you have to recognize when it comes to inflation and gas prices and the ways in which the American people are affected on a daily basis, you can't just dismiss it as that's a price we're willing to pay, you know, to do this if it doesn't affect you the same way. Because Biden and the people on the Hill and the politicians are not the ones that... Doesn't affect them. Exactly. Oh, they're driving their Teslas. And that was their answer. Yeah, that was their answer. Who cares if how high gas prices are if you have a Tesla? What an insulting thing to say to struggling uh, voter, to workers, to small business owners, to people who drive trucks, right? all of that kind exactly. of stuff. You can't, you can't even get a Tesla. Especially <laughs> in the same breath of recognizing your public infrastructure is bad. And low, mm-hmm. especially what we're seeing with flights, you know, uh, the bridges, bridge collapsed recently, all these mm-hmm. different ways. If you're going to say, all right, gas prices are up, inflation is happening, these things, oh, it's wartime, and we're, we should in some way, right. I guess, get used to these kinds of standards. And I need to see you doing more to increase the public, you know, these uh, public transportation available. Because the, the reality is um, a lot of Americans rely on, on driving. They have to, right? They have to. We don't have the best public transportation system. You know, places like New York City, we have it. And I wouldn't say it's the best, but yeah. at least we have it. But that's not most the of the DC country. The D.C. public um, transportation system is uh, collapsing in and of itself. It's the most pathetic. Right. Uh, that's a whole other story. So. But but it's, it, the war talk right doesn't make sense because, well, we were not attacked. Yeah. And the nation that was attacked is not one we're committed to defend. Yeah. So what exactly are we doing? Like, what is the long-term strategy? And it, it's clearly not working. They are. Russia is winning this war slowly yeah. but surely i mean there maybe their performance was not as what they wanted good it to be. as expected they are taking casualties they're getting bogged down sure but they are 
they are slowly taking the territory right. that they set out to take. Right. So you know, it just doesn't make sense. I honestly, I can't say, I can't say definitively what the move is. I try to be fair and recognize. I am not personally impacted by you know what happens in Russia and Ukraine, but a lot of people are. I know I was just in Chicago yeah. the other day visiting a sorority sister, and I was in, she lived in the Ukrainian village, and I realized like, okay. We have a huge. Right. This, this definitely has a real impact on people. So I don't want to be quick to say right, no, America shouldn't a, do anything. Yeah. But at the same time, I do think there needs to be more of an effort to include what is the the country's opinion at large. Because right. I don't think they've done enough to consult whether or not the American people support this. Whether or not the American people have said, okay, I'm fine with the trade offs of supporting Ukraine and what this will yeah. mean for us financially and economically. If I felt like they were they were taking that into more consideration, I could right. I could better get on board with what right. Biden's agenda is. But I'm not. If Congress had to. Take a vote on it, then maybe we'd hear from the people. But since they just totally, Congress has just given up its role as being the one that declares war, or because right. you know, that's how it's supposed to be. The, the legislative branch declares war, and then the president just carries it out. Right. But Congress has completely abdicated its policy-making responsibilities right. to just be either a rubber stamp for the executive's agenda or a thorn in the executive side yeah. if it's an executive from the other party. So this is this is the result. No accountability on these Alas. things. Alas. But, uh, but this was supposed to be a good news segment. The good news oh, is gas prices you, you saw, coming sure down. I gave Biden his credit. All right. <laughs> we'll uh, tell you what's on our radars coming up next. Eliami, what's on your radar? Over 20 people have died in Rikers in the last year. Rikers is infamous, but what most people don't realize is that it's not some big bad prison for big bad people. It's a pretrial detention center, meaning the people being held there have not been convicted of a crime. They've been incarcerated simply because they're poor and they do not have the money for bail. They haven't even had a trial. Anybody arrested in New York City for any reason who cannot afford bail, they're sent to Rikers. Over 90% of the people incarcerated at Rikers are black or brown. The jail has been notorious for human rights abuses for decades. Last year, it was even declared a humanitarian crisis. Despite a widely popular campaign to close Rikers, especially after the death of Khalif Browder, a 16-year-old who was wrongly accused of stealing a backpack and sent to Rikers for two years before he was released and eventually took his own life, no substantive steps have been made to close the jail. And New York continues to spend $860 million on the jail each year. Nevertheless, a lesser known fact is there is something we can do about all this right now. A federal receivership. A federal receivership would strip the state government of control over Rikers. Then they would put a court-appointed expert, the receiver, in charge and allow them to address the human rights violations and bring Rikers in compliance with the law before returning control back to the state. Rikers has been overseen by a federal monitor since 2014 as a part of a class action settlement. That federal monitor has held Rikers in contempt repeatedly. Most recently, they were held in contempt after lawyers successfully showed that there were more than 8,400 instances in which a detainee was not taken to a medical appointment by the corrections officers. In March, that figure topped 12,700. Still, City officials and a federal monitor produced a plan to potentially avoid a federal takeover of the troubled Rikers Island jail complex. And the judge, who has the discretion to grant the federal receivership after these continued, continued contempt orders and human rights abuses, extended New York City yet another six months to reform a jail system. And do you know what happened? Just a week later, three people died at Rikers within the space of three days. 
And do you know what Mayor Eric Adams did? He tried to cover it up. 28-year-old Antonio Bradley used his clothing to hang himself inside a holding cell on June 10th. The officer, who was not on his post, arrived late, and by the time they cut him down, he was in a vegetative state, and the doc was informed that he would not make it. A judge later granted a compassionate release while he was on life support, although they didn't even bother to inform his family. He was removed from life support, but Eric Adams chose not to inform the Department of Justice of the in-custody death, preventing them from sending someone down to launch the investigation until much later. Once it was revealed that Eric Adams had covered this up, this in-custody death, to delay the Department of Justice's investigation, this man had the audacity to respond. I don't see that as a cover-up or a violation of any rule. If it is, we will definitely correct it. But my understanding is that a place of death is where they died. A place of death is where they died. The absolute absurdity of this comment rivals only the absolute stupidity of remarks he made earlier in his term, when he called for solitary confinement of people at Rikers and once criticized, responded with, it's not solitary confinement, it's restrictive housing. It doesn't end there. 52-year-old Herman Diaz was in his cell when he started choking on an orange, begging for help. And do you know what happened? An officer stood there and watched the man choke to death. Other incarcerated men tried their best to help him. They tried giving him the Heimlich maneuver as they frantically tapped on the window to the officer who just stood there and watched as Herman Diaz turned blue and died. It was all captured on video. And do you know how Eric Adams responded to these tragedies? He went to Rikers to lend his full-throated support to the corrections officers. He said, I am not ashamed of you. I am proud of you. Keep doing the job you're doing. Officers quite literally stood and watched a man choke to death, and Eric Adams tells them he's proud of them. This crisis has been coming to a boiling point for a while, and it's important to understand the events that led up to this moment. In January 2020, New York City passed historic bail reform that prevented judges from setting bail on most misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies. And as a result, the Rikers population decreased by 30%. Then, at the height of the pandemic, disgraced former Governor Andrew Cuomo used the COVID relief bill to sneak in a rollback of bail reform and increase the amount of people that judges could set bail on and send to Rikers. As a result, the Rikers population increased by more than 34%, as COVID ran rampant throughout the jail, the people incarcerated at Rikers began getting sick, dying, committing suicide, and advising their public defenders that they were being denied medical treatment, that they could not socially distance themselves or protect themselves from the illness because tens of them were being stacked into cells. Jose Martinez was just 35 years old. Jose was sent to Rikers on a parole violation for allegedly stealing a single bear. He was sick and in his cell begging for help and medical attention, but corrections officers refused to help him or get him medical assistance. They told his cellmate to walk him to the bed. He died there. And they didn't even have the courtesy to properly inform his family. An English-speaking chaplain called his Spanish-speaking mother to tell her. She couldn't even understand what was being said and thought initially that they were trying to arrest her. Issa Abdul Karim was 42 years old and bound to a wheelchair. He was being held at Rikers on a parole violation. They kept him in the intake pen for 10 days, which was so crowded, he was kept in his wheelchair the entire time where he caught COVID and eventually experienced acute shortness of breath, became unconscious and collapsed. He received CPR, but to no avail, and he was pronounced dead even before an ambulance arrived. Esaias Izzy Johnson was just 24 years old. He had autism and he was trapped on Rikers Island on a dollar bail 
due to a New Jersey warrant for a minor misdemeanor charge. He begged for medical help for two days straight, telling them he was in great pain and needed to go to the clinic. The guards never got him, and he was found dead in his cell. Public defenders and advocates pled with the legislators to begin decarcerating Rikers and taking the concern seriously. Even city council members who visited the jail and reported bearing witness to their suffering as people tried to kill themselves. Even after these photos leaked, revealing the absolutely abhorrent conditions inside Rikers, judges continued sending people to Rikers and no steps were made to decarcerate or stop the rising death toll. Despite the fact that New York City has proved incapable of stopping or even slowing the mounting atrocities at Rikers, Mayor Eric Adams took office in January of this year and has resisted calls for a federal receivership that would allow the federal government to take over Rikers and provide it with the necessary overhaul it needs. Instead, he's continuously called for increases to Rikers, already $860 million yearly budget for the prison, and the $2.6 billion given to its staff so he can hire more corrections officers. And in his 2022 budget, despite cutting money from housing, education, and parks, he increased NYPD's budget and he hired 400 more corrections officers. Adam has continued to make the argument that the reason for the crisis at Rikers is a staffing shortage. But here is reality. There are 5,600 people detained at Rikers, but there are 7,575 corrections officers. They have literally thousands more corrections officers than they have inmates. The city's jail employed five corrections officers for every three incarcerated people, a ratio seven times higher than the national average. There are about four officers for every three incarcerated people. It's not a staffing shortage. It's mismanagement, it's neglect, and it's cruelty. New York spends more on jails than any other city in the country. The DOC's budget is more than $1 billion higher than the nation's largest jail system, and the city spends more than 350% more per incarcerated person than Los Angeles or Cook County, Illinois. New York City has proven to us for decades that it cannot get this situation under control. It's time for a federal receivership so we can put a stop to this endless suffering. I mean, look, I agree with uh, a lot of that. I, yeah. I think, I mean, Rikers is a really cruel place. And what many people don't understand about Rikers, or at least I didn't understand until I you know, started uh, studying criminal justice more closely, is that this is, you know, these are people, many of them, I think most of them incarcerated there, who haven't even been convicted. Exactly. They're awaiting trial. Right. So the, the very, you know, you might think, well, whatever, these are, these, they, you know, they did their crime, so these are the conditions they have to endure. Right. If they didn't want to, to have to put up with this, they should have led law-abiding lives. But you are innocent until proven guilty in exactly, this country. Robbie. And they, they deserve a right to trial. Right. And so you should not be held. Like, this could happen to anyone. It right. could happen to the innocent because you can get falsely accused, wrong place, wrong right. time, whatever. Uh, but, but even if you're not, you deserve your day in court. You shouldn't and be And some dying. of these people, yeah. wait, right, you shouldn't be, you should not be sentenced to death by, you know, de facto, while you're waiting for trial in right. abhorrent conditions. And some people are waiting because of the backlog in our criminal justice system, right? People are waiting a long month. And it's worse months, even from the pandemic. More than months. Years, 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 years before they get a trial, especially when the pandemic happened. Yeah. They put a freeze on speedy trial time, so it no longer counted their, their constitutional speedy, right, speedy trial time. And so people yeah. just sat in there indefinitely, and you saw the deaths mount. You know, I, I realized Rikers is something, Rikers' reputation precedes it. I knew about Rikers yeah. long before I came to New York City. 
And I think that's why people think, oh, it's this prison. They think it's a terrible prison for all these like violent criminals. It's, it's, it's shocking, jarring when you realize, oh, it's actually a pretrial detention center. So all these right. people that you're hearing getting slashed and paralyzed and killed and, and sexually assaulted at Rikers, these people have simply just not even had a trial, haven't been convicted, and many of them are there on misdemeanor accusations. Right. It's, it's, it's really sad. Yeah. If you believe in limited government and individual rights, as I do, and the importance of civil liberties, you should want people to have subject to full due process, right. which would include getting your day in court, which these people have not yet had, and, and thus these conditions really are abhorrent. Absolutely, so, Robbie. Yeah. All right, well, we agreed this today. Yes, That's nice. That's beautiful. Nice. Uh, my radar's coming on up. Uh, stay tuned for that. So, Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, for the last few days, an odd and disturbing claim has been going around social media. The claim is that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a piece of legislation that requires Florida's university students and professors to register their political beliefs and or their political affiliation, R or D, with the state. Now, that would be a terrible idea and a gross violation of the First Amendment. The government has no business demanding that people announce their political views, and in fact, it's prevented from doing so by the Bill of Rights. Thankfully, the claim is entirely false. Ron DeSantis signed no such bill. Now, the claim has been appearing all over Twitter. Author Stephen King, a noted liberal Democrat, shared the rumor here. And then there was Grant Stern, who's an editor of Occupy Democrats, and also Claire McCaskill, the former Democratic senator from Missouri and a current MSNBC contributor. Now, both those latter two tweets by McCaskill and the Occupy Democrats editor, those two linked to an article that appeared in Salon magazine that was titled, DeSantis signs bill requiring Florida students, professors, to register political views with the state. But that article is actually a year old. It's from June 23rd, 2021. And it was debunked a year ago by PolitiFact. PolitiFact is an independent fact-checking organization. I've actually criticized some of its fact-checks in the past because I think it occasionally, maybe more than occasionally, manifests a liberal bias. So if even PolitiFact says the claim is false, well, it's probably false in this case. And in fact, that's exactly what PolitiFact says. The bill in question, HB 233, which DeSantis signed a year ago, calls for the creation of an academic survey that university students and professors can voluntarily participate in. That survey will ask members of campuses to give their views on the climate for intellectual diversity and viewpoint diversity at the school. The intention is that if there's too much political bias, there are examples of students being mistreated due to their political views, well, they could speak up vis-a-vis -vis this survey. No one, I repeat, no one, will have to register their political beliefs or their political affiliation with the state of Florida as a result of this legislation. Now, what's been going around on Twitter is simply false. It's a false claim and an outdated one at that. It's a year old. This has not stopped members of the mainstream media, including Washington Post columnist Max Boot, from citing the claim as evidence that, quote, DeSantis is engaged in one of the most alarming assaults on free speech and academic freedom since the dark days of McCarthyism in the 1950s. Are there no editorial standards at the Washington Post anymore? Do Post writers feel wholly unconstrained by basic facts, like, is this claim old and debunked? I guess not. 
It's obvious that the mainstream media will align with Democrats and go after DeSantis, who is rapidly becoming a de facto frontrunner for the 2024 Republican nomination, displacing, I think, former President Trump. So perhaps the MSM has gotten lazy because finding things to criticize about Trump was comparatively easy. Because some of the hits on DeSantis have been rather pathetic. Remember when 60 Minutes falsely claimed that Florida giving a vaccination contract to Publix was unethical and DeSantis was behind it? That was another weak hit. Weak sauce, I might say. So is this one. It's fair to criticize DeSantis for the things he's actually doing that are ill-considered. And in fact, I've done so on the show. I've knocked his efforts to control the curriculum in the schools. I've criticized the so-called don't say gay bill because it's, in my opinion, overbroad and badly worded. HB 233, on the other hand, was signed into law over a year ago. It simply doesn't do what Democrats and the media, and I guess Stephen King, told you it does. So this was uh, reappearing on my feed all week, mm -hmm. and I was going, why are people talking about this? Was there, was there a new bill he signed? Because right. this was, like, from a year ago. Yeah. And it's just not, like, PolitiFact looked at it. Yeah. Like, you can, I guess you can object if you want to think, you can think this is not something that should be done at all. The mm -hmm. point is that, you know, conservatives are concerned about bias and political intolerance on college campuses, you know, cancel culture, that kind of stuff. And, uh, and one way of dealing with it is to just begin by surveying it to see to the extent it's real. So this only calls for a survey where, you know, if you feel um, that you can't express your views or that the, the climate of the campus is hostile to you, you can participate in the survey. It does not call for any kind of, like, registry of who is voting for whom or that kind of thing. It's been debunked. Totally debunked. But then this week, it was just oh, oh, again and again and again, people were talking about it. Claire McCaskill, Stephen King. Those were just like prominent examples, but it was everywhere. Mm -hmm. Like, where's the new? What did, what did DeSantis do now? It didn't do anything. It's a year ago. Like, they, I don't think people kept checking that Salon article they were sharing. Yeah. It's June of 2021. Well, you know, people don't read most articles. They just share them. Yeah. Read them. <laughs> I mean, that's just the truth on, on both sides. Everybody, yeah. people respond to headlines. They retweet things. They share things. And they're not actually reading or engaging with it substantively. So that doesn't surprise me. But do you me. think the media has gotten lazy because that last point I made? Because it's so easy to mock Trump because he's kind of a ridiculous person and he mm -hmm. says really embarrassing things. A lot of the, not all of the criticism of DeSantis, because yeah. I share some of it, but a lot of it has just been, seemed incredibly like out of, pra the media's out of practice or something, <laughs> going after a, a prominent Republican. What do you think? Listen, I don't know if I would say the media got lazy. I, uh, I'm not unreasonable. Misinformation is misinformation. If that's not what the bill is or what the bill does, I'm not going to... Right. Dig my heels in on a non-existent point, right? I think there are a lot of legitimate criticisms to be had of DeSantis. Like I said, I think, I think the culture, the culture war thing is nonsense. I think it is a Republican recharacterization of bigotry. I think his "don't say gay" bill is ridiculous and uh, discriminatory. I think what he's doing in terms of Disney, I think what he's doing in terms of history, the schools. I think he's doing a significant amount of things that are incredibly problematic uh, for marginalized communities. That being said, I will concede to you here, like if. That's not what it is. That's not what it is. And I think that's just the reality of the climate and the time that we live in. People on both sides share information. No one's particularly looking into it. The average person is a consumer, you know, and they just and they didn't scrutinize it. So I think it's always worthwhile to point out misinformation yeah. when you find it. I have no objection to and that. Then, and, but these people will be some of the loudest. And by these people, I mean these people in the media, pe mm -hmm. kinds of people who spread this sort of thing will be the first to call for well, know, stronger policing of misinformation. I'm like, look at the, I, the misinformation I agree. spreading. I might agree in a world where the party 
we're talking about literally isn't going on and on about an election rigging that didn't happen, can't concede the fact that they lost an election. DeSantis himself has gone about uh, uh, passing laws to address what is a pretty rare uh, election fraud claim in order to continue speaking to and stoking right-wing nonsense. So I have to be fair. I just don't, I don't, I, I don't think the, the criticism can be made of Democrats without recognizing how deeply, deeply Republicans are committed to sharing and perpetuating misinformation to uh, appease their base. But I agree with you here, Robbie. There's a lot of it. The sharing of misinformation, to my mind, does just takes place in all corners. Yeah, that's it what I said. It takes place in the mainstream. I think it, I, that's and what I said. that's why we ought to be careful about efforts to, yes. to purge it. We call it correct things yeah. that you think are wrong, but this whole, oh, no, we have to make social media a safe space for misinformation. I don't well, think that. Misinformation is ne it's going to be this most fraught challenge. And you know, I, I don't uh, I don't disagree with you in terms yeah. of I don't think our government should be having these kinds of roles, which is also why even the survey, I recognize that the law isn't what uh, people thought it was, but I think the survey in and of itself is improper. I think it speaks to an imaginary uh, claim and Republicans need to paint themselves as the oppressed when they are quite frank, just quite frankly not. Oh, um, so I disagree with the survey and all of that, but I agree. I think, you know, if it's misinformation, it's misinformation. Call it out, Robbie. That's a, that's a topic for another day, but <laughs> our panel is up next and we'll talk about the left media's reaction to the rise of a so-called far-right Latina. Yesterday, the New York Times published a piece about newly elected GOP Congresswoman Myra Flores, where they referred to her as a far-right Latina. Flores hit back at the Times and said, I won my congressional race with faith, family, and hard work. The leftist media labels me an extremist because I'm against their narrative and love this great country. One of our next guests, Giancarlo Sopo, pointed out the major hypocrisy of the Times because when framing AOC, they called her a, quote, political star, in contrast to the framing of Flores and other GOP Latina candidates who they dub as far right. So founder of Visto Media, Giancarlo Sopa, and Hill reporter Rafael Bernal join us now to discuss these dynamics further. Uh, welcome to you both. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Giancarlo, I'll start with you and, you know, elaborate on this hypocrisy you're pointing out that, uh, you, you know, whatever you think of her, AOC is for, certainly someone with, far, with what I would easily term as far-left political views, but that's not the narrative when they talk about her. But then you have someone who has very typical for the, you know, conservative, socially conservative, populist conservative, whatever we're in now, views, and that's far-right. Um, why do you think that is? Yeah, you know, it's funny. So uh, the New York Times is a, a newspaper that normalized Fidel Castro and, uh, you know, looked past Stalin's crimes. So I'm not surprised that they don't find anything far left. AOC was clearly a far left candidate, yet when she runs for office, she's framed as a rising political star that use all sorts of other positive adjectives to describe her. But, you know, someone like Myra Flores, who has, like you said, very mainstream conservative viewpoints, especially for somebody uh, who's Mexican-American in the Rio Grande Valley, where people tend to be more traditional and faith-oriented. They describe her as far right, and they threw in, uh, you know, uh, Republican candidates in the neighboring districts like Cassie Garcia and Monica de la Cruz. They threw them into the mix. What's really funny is that you take a look at what these uh, three ladies believe in. In the case of Cassie Garcia, they described her as far right because she attends church regularly and believes in school choice. Those are hardly far right views. In fact, they're very mainstream positions, um, not just politically on the right, but more broadly among Hispanics. 
I mean, is it possible that people can feel that the Republican Party, as it stands today, they feel like the Republican Party itself is pretty far right? Is that possible? And I, as far as AOC being far left, I don't know if she would find that derogatory. I don't think anybody would find that that way. I know y'all may mean it that way, but I don't know if there's an issue with that. They might have framed her as a rising star because they felt positive about her candidacy, but I don't think it's because they would object to her being seen far left or seeing it derogatorily. What do you think, Raphael? So that is actually a really good point, because I don't think the New York Times thought, and, and maybe they should have given this some thought, I'm not here to judge that part, but I don't think they thought that, that the far right label was going to be seen as derogatory. Right. Now, Giancarlo makes a really good point that anybody who's mainline Catholic, sort of socially conservative, conservative Hispanic in the RGV, the Rio Grande Valley, is really not far right. That is very mainstream conservative. However, there is, and I think, and, and I'm not sure this applies to all three candidates, but certainly the Congresswoman, she has uh, challenged the uh, results of the 2020 election. She has a past that she's since deleted from Twitter with some uh, uh, retweeting some QAnon statements, uh, you know, very actively and clearly not by mistake. So that part of, of what she's expressed is far right. But certainly, I, I, I just underlining that point that Giancarlo made, somebody who's a mainline Catholic in the RGB is, is very standard conservative. Right, but it's possible that they, they aren't using those particular things, those particular qualities just inherently that she attends church or that uh, she is... Uh, pro-life, those things to mean that she's pro-right, uh, uh, she's far-right. It's possible that the things that you just highlighted, uh, Raphael, and other things could be why they, they determined that she is she's a far-right candidate. But, you know, how would you respond to this, Giancarlo, so you know her personally? Yeah, look, I, I've, I spent a day with her uh, campaigning in the Rio Grande Valley, and Cassie Garcia from the neighboring district was also with us. Uh, these are garden-variety, mainstream conservatives, uh, some of the most normal people I've actually ever met in in politics. I was really impressed in particular by Myra, who's a working mom. She actually grew up working the, the cotton fields of the area, working in agriculture. Uh, she's an immigrant from Mexico. Her story is very, is what you would just find very typical in that area. I don't find her views far right at all. They're, they're just, they're pretty mainstream conservative views. It's actually expressed, uh, some uh, very moderate views, I'd say, like, for example, on wanting to find a solution for the DACA kids uh, who, who live in that area. So uh, garden variety conservative, I think she's being she's being maligned at a national level because of the change that's happening more broadly among Hispanic voters. We saw that they, sh they shifted 10 points between 2016 and 2020 uh, in their support for Republicans and that we see that uh, Democrats cannot uh, for, for, like, forget uh, turning Texas blue. They, they can't win a lot of other states if these shifts continue happening. And, and I think that's really the main reason why we're seeing uh, the smearing of Myra Flores and other Republican Hispanic women. So you would consider being called far right, uh, being maligned, you would consider that inherently derogatory? I think in the way that they that that they're trying to say it, they they mean it in a, in a derogatory fashion. I mean, look, if supporting school choice and religious liberty uh, and supporting a strong border makes someone far right, then you can put most Hispanics who live in that area under that category. Now, the Times, the way that they frame the story, they make it seem like she's a fringe candidate 
or that these are fringe views, they're actually very mainstream views among Hispanics. The Hispanics have a lot of nuance, uh, political nuance and sophistication in their political views. Uh, they're not a monolith, and we, we tend to view things very differently. Mm. Flores appeared on Fox News last night with Laura Ingram, where she spoke to this. Let's watch. Look, all I can say is AOC does not represent the the Hispanic community, does, definitely does not represent Texas District 34 and who we are here. And we're not worried about, you know, the Washington nonsense, Latinx, you know, worried about the cost of living, gas, food, you know, health care. That's what we're worried every single day. We're not waking up, you know, and thinking about, you know, what's happening in Washington. They're just so disconnected. Yeah. You know, Rafael, I think I would describe the tone of the New York Times story that we're discussing as almost incredulous or, or like, how is this happening that Democrats are losing Latinos? I think it reflects the Democratic Party's um, confusion and frustration that the whole idea that was you know, conceived during the Obama administration, that Democrats are insured this kind of permanent majority because the more minority voters there are, the more people come to this country, they're going to all vote Democrat. And that has turned out to be totally, totally wrong. And both parties are, are coming to cope with that and I think deal with the ramifications of it. But, uh, you know, what it's, it's hard to understand exactly how the Democratic Party went wrong with these voters, but they clearly did. And uh, do you think this is going to continue to really, really hard? It's probably it's got to get worse. It's a it's a trend, I think. So I, I think the flaw that I can the, that I can detect without getting into the media reporting part of it, that's not definitely outside of my beat. But the flaw that I can detect in, in this story is that there's a there's a feeling of surprise that there would be conservative Latinos. As Giancarlo said, it's it practically become a platitude. We are not a monolith. There is there is a very big difference between Texas Mexican-Americans, California Mexican-Americans, the rest of the Southwest. Um, within the rest of the Southwest, definitely huge differences with Florida and populations in the Northeast. So, you know, AOC is representative of her district. And, you know, Mayra Flores says it correctly. She's not representative of Texas 54. She never intended to be. She's of Puerto Rican origin from Queens of the Bronx, and, and she's representative of that area. Let it be said that she's about as far left as Nidia Velasquez, who, who represents a neighboring district who's been there since the early 90s. So it's not really a movement toward the left. It's just a sort of, of a generation change. Now, I, I do think that it's 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 easy to see where Democrats have gone wrong. They haven't really lost that many Demo that many Latino voters, if every single Latino voter was going to effectively vote, every single eligible Latino voter was going to vote, the Democrats, I believe, would have a huge advantage, like even bigger than, than the almost 70% that we've seen. But where they have gone wrong is they haven't campaigned and they haven't gotten their voters out to vote where Republicans have been very effective. I've, I call it basically this, the Florida strategy. Republicans were very effective in energizing conservative Latinos in Florida to vote. And they learned that lesson and they're exporting it to Texas. They might be exporting it to places like Georgia and, and certainly Senate seats like uh, Arizona and Nevada. And and the Democrats are have been basically caught napping on this. They don't they don't reach out early enough. They don't invest enough money. It's not that that Latinos are moving 
away from Democrats toward Republicans, it's that Democrats who have a very big proportion of a very large population are not doing the work to get that proportion out to the polling stations. Mm. Well, thank you both for joining us, Rafael and Giancarlo. We'll be back with more Rising coming up. Cancel culture has claimed its most recent victim in Midwest native and New York City newcomer Griffin Green, who has been called the Bodega Bro for his viral TikTok about the lack of full-service grocery stores in the Bronx. Let's watch. Okay, so I just moved to New York, and I'm trying to go grocery shopping, and so I type in, like, grocery stores on my Apple Maps, and, like, every one I go to, like, I'm walking, too. Like, they're like this or, like, like this like bro that's not a grocery store like i'm trying to get like eggs yogurt like cheese like shit like that right like look at this place hey yo ak let me get a bacon egg and cheese the aki way <laughs> like you know those tiktoks like i'm i'm doing it like, I've literally been to, like, five of those now, and, like, I don't know what the f*** I'm about to do for dinner. Like, where are the Kroger's and, like, the Whole Foods at? Like, I'm about to eat f***ing, like, like, cereal and ramen for dinner. Like, what the f***? Green received major backlash online as a result of the video and was fired soon after from his new position at uh, Outreach, a, product- a productivity software company. They tweeted, quote, thank you for bringing this to our attention. Upon investigation, we took swift internal action in accordance with our company policies and in alignment with our core values. However, Outreach later told Reason Magazine's Liz Wolf that Green's employment was terminated for a different TikTok where he allegedly, quote, leaked private and confidential information. Associate editor at Reason Magazine, Liz Wolf, joins us now to expand on her reporting. Welcome back to Rising, Liz. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Liz, you, uh, like I, have paid close attention to the kind of cancel culture beat or, you know, whatever we want to call it, people getting fired or, or, or expelled or whatever for, you know, sometimes juvenile or embarrassing social media behavior, sometimes long ago, sometimes more recent. Uh, and, yeah, he, like, moved to New York, right, for this job and then is out of a job immediately for, you know, what I thought was kind of like a fish-out-of-water type uh, routine that you know maybe you thought wasn't funny, but didn't look to me like it was designed to be offensive or racist or whatever. But you know, tell us more about uh, about what you said in your piece. Yeah, so I called Green up and I called the company up because I was interested in getting both sides of the story. And very few people had sort of tracked down um, any of the parties involved in this, so I kind of wanted to get, give them a chance to respond. Uh, Outreach, the company, in my view, was kind of BSing. Um, They claimed that the reason they terminated Green was because he had shared a confidential offer letter via TikTok. Uh, This was something he did share three weeks ago. It's not something where you can make out any identifying details about the company. Uh, It's nothing more than a generic offer letter. It's kind of absurd to me. There's no real confidential information that is now out in the public circulating. And then they also followed that up with a uh, boilerplate DEI statement to me. And so I was sort of like, well, wait a second, if you're firing him for um, this very buttoned up formal reason of he shared confidential information, and yet you're also fixing this DEI statement, to me, you're kind of telling on yourself, right? Like you're you're really reacting to the Mm -hmm. controversy and to the Twitter scorn. 
Uh, when I spoke with Green, I mean, he, he noted that it was his second day on the job uh, when he was fired. On one hand, you know, we're libertarians. We believe companies should have the ability to hire and fire at will as they want. But to me, there's something really uh, absolutely odious about this practice of firing people for sort of character related things uh, as opposed mm -hmm. to job performance, which to be fair, companies have always done this, right? right? You fire somebody if they sexually harass someone. Uh, but this is sort of outside of the company's purview. It's something that the company wouldn't have even known about had you know, pissy people on Twitter not brought in it to their attention. Right. The snitches, uh, the tattletales. Yeah, I'm it's just, talking about snitches. It's like uh, acquiescing to tattletales type thing mm -hmm. that's become all too common. And I'm just confused about what incentive does the company have to do this? Well, first of all, companies fire people, like we've discussed this, companies fire people for any reason, right? Social media policies are not uncommon. I know my job, you say the wrong thing on Twitter, you very much so can get fired. Uh, same thing with even like college admissions. You do something, they see with a red solo cup. People have been fired and let go for yeah. all kinds of arbitrary reasons because it doesn't go with the company's policy. So that is not uh, uncommon. Well, to we can criticize them. Yeah, 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 go ahead. And I'm just telling you my thoughts. <laughs> and I would push back on me calling this cancel, like cancel culture. We can't cancel somebody we never had a subscription to this is a nobody we don't know this person this is not a public figure of any kind this is a regular guy he put out he put out these videos people respond social media he's not singled out social media responds to everything if you're the topic of twitter for the day you get a viral video you're going to get responses so that happens all of the time and i would push back on I listen. If he feels like he has an employment claim, he feels like he was this was a wrongful termination. I encourage him to seek an employment lawyer. I am not going to push back on the man's rights to go pursue it, however he would like, and to feel however he would like about being fired and about um, the fact that he moved to New York for that. But as far as people's response to it, I know he did say, "I'm in the Bronx for a few weeks." So I'm like the only white dude in this whole gym. So I got this NAACP shirt. So these people will vibe with me more. It's not, there are yeah. some problem, there are lots of problematic comments made, and I will say this, in terms of New Yorkers, New Yorkers are a people you know, New Yorkers feel very strongly about New York identity, even like outside of race, anything, bodegas are a central staple to New York City culture. <laughs> you come for bodegas, they come for you online. Yeah, Andrew Yang can tell you firsthand, you play with the bodegas, you're going to receive <laughs> that, the backlash. Oh, that was dumb too, though. My point that is, it, happ it happens. He's not, this is, this is, this, it happens. Well, it That's happens, life. but I, I don't, Social well, media is a place. It shouldn't you, be life. If you avail yourself to the public, I don't know what is this world where we think you don't get criticism. Yeah. You avail yourself to the public. You put up this video. You did that. That's what happens. You got to be more thoughtful about stuff like that. But I, like I said, if y'all feel yeah. the claim, employment I, lawyer. I look at it a little differently. So first mm -hmm. of all, I totally relate to that. We're both New Yorkers. Also, you can get yogurt and eggs and cheese at right, a absolutely, what? Liz. Get them. Uh, but no, on your, to your point about cancel culture, I think it's important to be really clear about what we mean when we talk about this. And this is something that I've covered a lot, Robbie's covered a lot, um, but you don't have to be a public figure to have the mob come after you and to treat you and expect punishments that are really disproportionate from the offense. I think you're totally right that the rest of his TikTok videos, there's a level of like disturbing naivete and obliviousness and sort of insensitivity that I get from it. To me, that says uh, idiot from the Midwest who's 22. It doesn't necessarily scream malice to me. And I think there's this problem with a lot of like Gen Z and the sort of TikTok vlogging type thing where they're just putting all kinds of unfiltered thoughts out on the Internet. And like surely some of those things will come to bite them in the ass. Right. But I didn't get too much malice from the videos that I watched. And I asked him for access to them. He deleted his TikTok. So I had him send me some of the videos. I even 
uh, linked out to them via reason. I really want readers to be able to judge for themselves uh, the sort of severity of the offense. But I think it's important to go back to this idea that you don't have to be famous to be canceled. You can be a regular person and still there's this like virality uh, and this ability for people in numbers to really wield the power of numbers to attack you for things that, yes, were maybe wrong or maybe uh, inappropriate to say, but the actual punishment in many cases is really disproportionate to the offense. And that's something I struggle with. And I struggle with the sort of spinelessness of the employer or the university in these situations who are basically bending to this mob as opposed to in any way trying to define the company values that they claim to hold. I think I take issue with calling it a mob. The fact that we use these terminology, we're, we're trying to fit this into. this. The, the internet happens. Just because we're talking about him and single him out doesn't mean he's getting a response that's different than how the internet is. You put anything up and you're going to see people giving you backlash. You're going to see criticism. You're going to see that. I could go on my Twitter right now and find a significant amount of people that have a problem with something I've said or something I've put out. That happens. It doesn't make it a mob. It doesn't mean that you're being canceled. Now, will I say he suffered a consequence? Absolutely, right? They fired him. And I'm not really going to make any commentary as to whether or not it's proportional. Disproportionate, disproportionate. I didn't call for him to be fired. I wouldn't have called for him to be fired based on this. But I don't think it reflects cancel culture. I don't think it means it's a mob. Do I think it means that he possibly he has every right to feel away? I think he has a right to feel away. He's obviously suffered some kind of harm. And I think if he believes that he has an employment discrimination claim in some way, he should pursue that. I just would push back, Liz, on it being called cancel culture. But I respect the insight and the opinion. Uh, well, I'll give you the, the last word, Liz. But what, one thing I've noticed is that uh, so I actually feel almost stronger about it when this happens to, you know, just, I don't know, right, for lack of a better terminology, regular folks. When it happens to famous people or you know, very public people, people who are used to, I guess, uh, speaking carefully and cautiously or, or are more or should be properly more subject to public accountability, certainly politicians. I don't you know if they get canceled, good, cancel them all. Fine. I don't care. But, but it's just a random that. person. I, you know, it, I, you, I, I feel for them. What do you make of that? Yeah, I think there's there's something really terrible. I think it's very easy to basically say people often do this when talking about cancel culture. They either say, oh, well, you know, it's not actually a phenomenon. Think about all the people who ended up being signal boosted by nature of their canceling. Um, you see, I think people sometimes trot out the example of Barry Weiss, who I know we're both friends with, Robbie, um, as somebody who was very unpopular at The New York Times and then resigned from her post and has now created a very successful uh, media enterprise in her time away from, from The New York Times. Um, and so I think sometimes people point to her or other sort of intellectual dark web type heterodox figures. I sort of dispute all of those terms, but that rough body of thinkers. Um, and, and they point to them and they say, hey, look, the fact that they got so much public criticism and so much heat really led to their careers <clears throat> becoming more successful. But the thing that I would point these people to is all the canceled people who ended up fading into obscurity, who ended up unable to make money for themselves, who had to shutter their businesses, who were perhaps really low level and didn't have um, the means of sort of leveraging this into a much bigger uh, career opportunity. Because I think for some people, it does become a career opportunity, yeah. a way of distinguishing yourself in a really crowded marketplace. Uh, there's still a lot of pain that comes with that. I don't want to diminish the pain that people feel. Um, but I do think we sort of don't pay attention to all the people who fade into obscurity, who fade into the shadows, yeah. who have been wronged in a, in a really horrible way and never have any way of seeking recourse for that. They never win their lawsuits. They never win damages. They never get a job that they like again. They don't feel fulfilled going forward. In many cases, their dreams are taken from them and they're taken from them by, in my view, 
the power of numbers and often people who have no stake in the matter, who aren't actually good judges, good holistic judges of their moral character. These are rando strangers on Twitter who, for <laughs> no, whatever it's... reason, we've empowered, we've imbued this yeah. crazy power. Um, to me, that's it's it's a perversion of justice. Yeah. Well, thank you, Liz. It's always a pleasure having you with us. We'll have more rising after this. Yesterday, an appellate court in New Orleans heard arguments on a key immigration case that involves the legality of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, better known as DACA, and could determine the future for hundreds of thousands of young immigrants. Now, the Biden administration led an appeal against a ruling by U.S. District Court judge who ruled last year that DACA was illegal. And while the hearing has energized advocates on both sides of the aisle, The Hill's Rafael Bernal reports that it's unlikely to be resolved anytime soon. Rafael joins us now to expand on the case further. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, always great to see you. So tell us what's at stake in this case and, you know, what is what is the administration's um, argument and, and what's the current legal status? So the parameters are really they go from a decision to maintain DACA saying that, you know, if, if the administration and immigrant advocates get their way fully, uh, the administration would be able to fully re-implement the program, expand it, uh, change it at, at its, as it sees best, uh, essentially saying that deferred action is is a power that the executive has and that Congress has given given the executive broad, like broad powers to interpret that that um, that deferred action. Now, of course, the flip side of it is a complete termination of the program. Now, that's very, very unlikely to mean that people who currently have DACA would completely just overnight lose their benefits but it would it would mean a continued a current status where the the administration is not allowed to bring new people on board into the program and it would it, and that means people would eventually age out and daca would cease to exist over time so what do you think so what are you expecting to be the outcome of the case any any uh, hints <laughs> at that <laughs> Well, it's it's very clear that whatever happens in the Fifth Circuit, and this could take months to just go through the Fifth Circuit, so we're going to stay the way we are. Uh, whatever happens there, it's going to be appealed, whether it's to the full Fifth Circuit. Right now, it's just with a three-judge panel, or whether it's to the Supreme Court. So likely ends up in the Supreme Court. Now, that's, that's where things get a little bit uh, muddier, because, yes, there is a conservative supermajority in the Supreme Court, but we saw uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh sided with the liberals in the most recent immigration case that its similarity to the DACA case is about how much power Congress has given to the executive to interpret immigration law. So really, I, I mean, I'd say the coin is up in the air on that one. There's uh, and, and arguments are actually very important in this case. Well, the executive government has a lot. Congress has a, uh, the executive branch of government has a lot of power when it comes to immigration. It's one of the few things. Uh, it, immigration immigrants don't fall under the strict scrutiny or protected classes. Executive government has a lot of unilateral issues. I only a unilateral power. Unilateral power. I know this because I'm an immigrant and I came to America in 2008. And the laws haven't changed. I know it's a it's a popular 
perception that it's Republicans super, super against, you know, immigration progress. But the Democrats have not been particularly progressive on it either. It hasn't changed much in terms of people similarly situated to me in all of the time I've been an American about 15 years. And so, and I, I find the, the pushback or to DACA particularly troubling because so often people have this conversation about doing it the right way, right? Not really realizing that, one, most people can't. They don't have a route to citizenship. Um, and I know this as my own self does not have citizenship and does not have a route to applying to citizenship. And I'm someone who came here on a student visa. I'm a lawyer admitted to the courts. Um, and in the case of DACA, that was a route that our government created, created and gave people this route so that they could get themselves in compliance. So it's interesting to see so many people push back on this and want it gone and to get rid of to get rid of these people who rely on DACA. And I, I wonder the motivation there. You know, what do you well, think? You, you know, I'm, I'm right there behind you. I came to this country in 2011. So just three years <laughs> behind you yes. and in the same process. But yeah, I, I think the, the fundamental idea is that Congress has been sclerotic on immigration for 25 years, for 30 years, really. Uh, there's no there's no hope that there will be big changes. So the INA, the, the Immigration and that Naturalization Act, Nationality Act, pardon me, uh, that we have now is probably the one we'll have for the foreseeable future. So the motive, the one motivation, of course, is is political. We are in an election year uh, tying the defense of DACA to what's going on at the border, as unfair as it may seem to anybody who's really looking at these issues, considering they're completely separate resources. You know, there's right. one government lawyer arguing in the Fifth Circuit circuit is not is not going to take away from whatever the Border Patrol is doing. But that argument is being made that resources are being driven toward defending DACA rather than driven toward, quote unquote, defending the border. Right. So. The political motivation is there, and then there are many groups. Uh, they're they're not populist, but they are powerful. Who who advocate for decreased immigration? Who say fewer immigrants are better for the country? Now, most economists disagree with this. Most sociologists disagree with this. But those groups exist, and they have grassroots power, and they have a lot of influence in today's Republican Party. And if if the argument is simply fewer fewer immigrants, then you know litigating against DACA or any other liberalizing immigration program simply just logically follows. Right, and it's unfortunate. I feel I feel the frustration for people that are recipients of DACA because we have to remember these are people that have been in America since they were children. Right, when DACA came about, it's specifically to protect people. They've lived their lives here for all intents and purposes. While they may not have U.S. citizenship, they probably identify as Americans. They've built their lives here. They've been there since they were children, and that's the reason we're affording them uh, this benefit. So it's unfortunate to see uh, this this push, this push so many people um, going out of their way, I feel, to treat them as though they are, they don't have any right or entitlement to feel like they should be able to live here and continue their lives here and to be in lawful status. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's really not about dreamers. It's, it's about the politics of immigration. Exactly. I, think, I think dreamers are recognized as, as a very sympathetic group to a broad majority of Americans, I think in the, in the 70s or 80s percentile, uh, sort of support dreamers and support their path to citizenship, but it, it does tie well in a political spectrum. It does right. tie well to to perceptions of what's going on at the border and perceptions of what further immigration can bring to this country. Right. Well, thank you, Rafael. It's a pleasure being here. 
and we'll have more rising right after this. What's on your radar, Kim? Well, yesterday during a visit to Cleveland, Ohio, President Biden spoke to a group of union workers about his pension guarantees. But during his 15-minute speech, he said a couple of eye-raising things regarding the economy. Biden blames inflation on Putin and says he's calling for a federal gas tax holiday, but Republicans are blocking it. Let's watch. And that's why what we're doing here is so important. Let me close with this. We made incredible progress on the economy from where we were a year and a half ago. We got a long way to go because of inflation, because of the, I call it, the Putin tax increase. Putin because of gasoline and all that grain he's keeping from being able to get to the market. Now I'm fighting like hell to lower costs on things that you talk about around your kitchen table. My dad used to say at the end of the day, it's just when you sit at that table, do you have enough money to pay for everything you need? Not a lot over. Do you have enough money to pay for everything you need? Well, Republicans do nothing to obstruct our efforts to lower your gas taxes. I propose that. I've asked the Congress to eliminate the federal gas tax. All right. So first of all, Russia isn't causing the inflation. It's sanctions on Russia that are contributing to the higher prices. But the war doesn't even explain it because inflation was here before the war and it's going to be here after the war. Last year in 2021, before the war was even a thought, the U.S. saw skyrocketing inflation of 7%. Now compare that to the previous nine years in a row, which saw the highest rate of 2.3 in 2019. The only thing the administration can do is blame it on Putin since they have no other explanation for why there is so much record inflation. And truth is they don't know what's causing it. The Fed is scrambling to control it but can't and their only play is to blame Putin and hope voters buy it and embrace it. Problem is people are starting to wonder if sticking it to Putin is worth not being able to put gas in the car and food on the table. Voters aren't exactly buying the whole this is wartime and we all need to do our part narrative. But again, even if Biden were to end the support for Ukraine today, inflation would still be here and then he'd have no one to blame. So he's thinking might as well just keep blaming it on Putin. Putin. Now about the gas tax. Biden has proposed a three-month federal gas tax holiday during the summer months, but it isn't just Republican lawmakers who are skeptical of it. So are Democrats. Current federal gas tax is 18.4 cents per gallon. In previous state, but not federal, gas tax holidays, oil companies only passed about 70% of that on to the consumer. But when it comes to federal gas tax, analysts say the savings will be even lower because they doubt oil companies will truly pass it along. They're saying it would only be a mere couple of pennies savings on the dollar, and that isn't enough to feel relief when prices are five bucks a gallon, but it's a nice talking point. Biden doesn't stop there. During his speech, he also claims before he got into office, people were waiting in long lines just to put a box of food in their trunks Watch this. You all remember what the economy was like when I was elected a country in a pandemic with no real plans how to get out of it. Millions of people out of their jobs. Families and cars, remember, backed up for literally miles waiting for a box of food to be put in their trunk. Just a box of food to be put in their trunk because they didn't have enough to eat. Previous administration lost more jobs in its watch than any administration since Herbert Hoover. That's a fact all based on failed trickle-down economics that benefit the wealthiest Americans and hit the middle class and working people the hardest. But we came in with a fundamentally different economic vision. 
an economy that grows from the bottom up and the middle out. It's good for everyone because when the middle class does well, the poor of a ladder up and the wealthy still do very well. I mean, listen, Bobby Noli, I understand that Biden might have some memory lapses here and there, but that last one to say that it was trickle down economics that caused the loss of jobs before he came into office. Does he not remember the pandemic and the shutdowns and all of the Democrats, Democrats who were screaming, lose your job. It's better than losing your life. Stop complaining about it. They were the ones that were forcing businesses to close down. I live in the state of California. We were under very harsh lockdowns for a very long time. Compare that to Republican states that were wanting to open up, like Florida, Ron DeSantis wanting to open things up. And he was criticized by Democrats, saying that he was a mass murderer, that he was going to be killing the people in his state. And so we ended up with, uh, you know, all these Democrats calling for lockdowns, calling for loss of jobs, saying it's better than your loss of life. Biden doesn't seem to remember that. And by the way, everybody got COVID anyway. So what's going on here? Yep. Yeah, I wish, you know, someone who just wants government to leave me alone, I wish Republican governments would leave me alone more than they do. Democratic governments never leave you alone. It's, it's a party right now beholden to the principle that we will make our voters, we will make our supporters, the working class, we will make them sacrifice for the greater good and we will define what the greater good is. And we will change from moment to moment as fits, you know, whatever the elites think is best. And we saw that during the pandemic, what everything you just said happened. And then with this, with the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, where Biden has continuously said, well, look, we just, you know, we're at war, so we have to sacrifice and we just got to kind of deal with it. And the voters are saying, no, we, we didn't we didn't agree to that. We didn't give you the, the authority to do this. No one took a vote and we're suffering. And you can't just I, the, the Democrats are just going to lose to the extent they always expect everyone to sacrifice. The, the, and and it, they don't affect it doesn't affect them because they're elites, the, the party leadership, the uh, the celebrities, the that kind of class. But the voters are turning away from Democrats because they don't want to do it. They can't do it. Many of them can't do it. They can't afford to pay higher prices and all the rest of it. So it's uh, it's uh, the, con- the continuity, I think, from the lockdown mindset to the COVID mindset to the Ukraine conflict mindset and, and going forward. It's always like, well, sorry, we just have to do this. Sorry if you drive a truck or suffer. if you have a small business yeah. or whatever your deal is or you or you don't want to get vaccinated, but you have a you know, a, you're in a, a federal employment requires it now or whatever else it is. Um, it's uh, it doesn't seem like a, it seems wrong and also a bad tactical strategy. Well, you know, we talked about it earlier, and I, I agree with a lot of the criticism in terms of the, the discourse around Ukraine and Russia and how that's affecting inflation and all these things are not being honest enough. And I don't think they're doing enough to incorporate what is uh, the sentiment of the average person in America. So I'll give you all that. As far as COVID, I'll be reasonable. First, I want to remind us. Donald Trump was president. <laughs> he was president at the time when we got our initial lockdowns and stuff. Um, and I do think, you know, people were dying. The pandemic was very serious. It was an unprecedented issue. Uh, so I would give Republicans or Democrats and everybody, I would, mm-hmm. I would give everybody a lot more grace in terms of trying to figure out how to respond to that and how to avoid avoid deaths and massive deaths. You know, we're at a different place now in terms of how we see and perceive the pandemic. But at the time, I think it was very reasonable and justified um, wanting the lockdowns. And I still think it was a pretty reasonable argument to say, yes, uh, 
loss of businesses or loss of uh, employment, these different things are going to happen as a result of trying to take the proper uh, safety precautions because of COVID. I also think both on both sides, I do think the, the Biden administration did not do enough to supplement that. I think, you know, they had promised uh, COVID relief checks immediately that they that they reneged on in amount. I don't think they did enough to stimulate the economy uh, to make up for what were the losses in terms of trying to take these COVID COVID precautions. Um, but as far as overall doing it, I, I didn't have a I have an issue with the lockdowns. But I do think they could they could engage in the rhetoric more honestly. I think it's important, and it's not just Biden doing. I see this from a lot of politicians talking about all of the results of COVID or the results of the lockdowns without really taking that into account. Um, and I think it probably would benefit Biden to say that. I think there are a lot of people that would still be um, sympathetic to that understanding. Like, okay, we were in the pandemic; these are these are the fallouts of that, and let's work on it. But I understand where both of you are coming from on this issue, actually. I mean, in terms of the, the lockdowns, and I, I think you probably feel somewhat similarly, Kim, uh, you know, it was one thing the way it was initially sold. It said, we don't understand this disease. We're very worried our hospitals are immediately about to be overwhelmed. We need a little bit of time to get uh, testing in place. So we're doing a 15-day pause on everything. And I said, okay, I guess I understand that. I don't love it, but I understand that. And then that morphed into an indefinite suspension of all uh, professional and social activity until there would be vaccines. And then even when there were vaccines, they continued past that. So now I'll never give the government the benefit of the doubt again after that. They, they, they said you gave... You, they said they were going to take an inch. We said, OK, then they took a mile. And it just to me, it speaks to the, the credibility. But you're right that that was under Trump. Yes. We can't lay that Thank at you. the feet of, of Joe Biden. And I think actually Trump burned a lot of credibility with his supporters Air for doing five, a Robbie. lot of the exact same things that uh, that Democrats would do. But uh, what do you think, Kim? Uh, but uh, well, I, I mean, I understand that Trump was president, but he was actually vocally calling for states to open up. And people were criticizing him over that, saying, oh, he's a mass murderer, like what they were saying about Ron DeSantis when Trump said, oh, everybody mm -hmm. should be able to celebrate Easter. Everybody was very upset about that. This The lockdowns were state by state, and they were even then beyond that, often municipality by municipality. So I don't think we can blame the president at all, whether it be Trump or Biden for the lockdowns. That was a Republican Democrat issue That's on a, a local level. And it was Democrat areas that decided to implement the harshest of the lockdowns and the mandates. So that is something his party owns. It's not something Biden has to own, but it's also not something Trump owns either. That is a party-wide issue. Democrats were calling for lockdowns. The base was calling for those lockdowns. I personally was never in favor of them. There was enough science and enough data out there already by the time the virus hit the United States that we knew that young people were not at risk for COVID, for, for serious COVID outcomes. That has not changed throughout the pandemic. The average age of death is still in the 80s for COVID. It's a very, it's a, it's a disease that definitely we should be protective of our elderly. I've got several 90 year old something grandparents, very protective of them. But that, you know, but Biden though now, and look, I am a, I'm a big critic of trickle down economics. They do not work. I totally agree with Biden on that, that that doesn't work. But that's not the reason why people were in endless long lines waiting for food to be put in the trunk of their car. That was because Democrats demanded those people lost their jobs. They demanded that they were shut down and that their restaurants had to close, that they weren't allowed to go to work. And then they ended up in those long food lines. So, you know, for him to say it's trickle down economics and that's the reason for it and not willing to put any blame whatsoever on his party. 
That to me is, you know. In fairness to Democrats, they didn't just call for, you know, lockdowns and these measures for safety. They also called for, in conjunction with that, they wanted governmental support. They wanted the government to support these businesses. They wanted to see the government support individual people so that people were able to protect themselves and, you know, stay out of work and do these different things. And as someone who was in New York City, and I stayed in New York City the entire time of the pandemic, never fled, um, we were very, we were hit extremely hard. We're a big city. We're stacked on top of each other. We saw quadruple the rate of COVID and the hospital and our hospitals were debilitated as a result of COVID. So it's not just that, you know, Democrats and these local politicians in these places just wanted to do it for arbitrary sake. We were we were experiencing very, very serious impact of that. And they were aware and they were cognizant of the fact that there would be people who would lose their jobs or that people couldn't afford to be out of work in these different things. And they did call for the government to 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 issue stimulus and help with that. So that's my only my only uh, Cuomo, he did such a great job there in that state of New York, didn't he? <laughs> he had nothing to do with that stockpile of deaths oh, that ended God. up happening in those nursing homes. Nothing oh. at all. Was it Democrat Cuomo? Kim, if you want to talk about Cuomo, trust me, I'm right here with you one day. We could do that. <laughs> and not just Cuomo was done in other states, yeah. uh, but Cuomo yeah. got m- most of the attention. But there's some accusations against uh, my the governor of my former state, Michigan, Governor Oh, yeah, Whitmer, right, Michigan. Um, yeah. Right after her kidnapping. <laughs> kidnapping. Uh, Uh, All right, uh, Kim, thank you so much. We'll be back with more Rising in just a minute. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has resigned today. Let's watch. Thank you, thank you. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. And I've agreed with Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of our backbench MPs, that the process of choosing that new leader should begin now. And the timetable will be announced next week. And I've today appointed a cabinet to serve, as I will, until a new leader is in place. So I want to say to the millions of people who voted for us in 2019, many of them voting Conservative for the first time, thank you for that incredible mandate the biggest conservative majority since 1987, the biggest share of the vote since 1979. And the reason I have fought so hard in the last few days to continue to deliver that mandate in person was not just because I wanted to do so, but because I felt it was my job, my duty, my obligation to you to continue to do what we promised in 2019. White House columnist for The Hill and News Nation correspondent Niall Stanage is here with us to discuss. Welcome, Niall. Good to be here. It's great to have you. So tell us more about this scandal that I think was the reason Johnson ultimately had to resign. Yeah, it's a fascinating scandal and the latest in a long string of scandals that has sort of bedeviled Boris Johnson. In this instance, it comes down to a character called Chris Pincher who resigned roughly a week ago after allegations came out that he had groped men at a party. And he said he had embarrassed himself and he resigned. Now, the question then is, what was Boris Johnson's knowledge of previous allegations against this man? Initially, Johnson said that he didn't know there had been any previous allegations. Then that explanation began to shift. He started talking about the fact that he didn't know the specifics. That was again contradicted. And ultimately, Boris Johnson landed on the explanation that he may have been told, but he had forgotten. That was not persuasive, even to members of his own party. And so 
here we are. Hmm. Wow. And my understanding is that there was also some uh, frustration with uh, the, the conservative government uh, for related or semi-related, I guess, in the same category of scandal, uh, uh, parties or events that were that were held during the kind of most lockdown period, mm. and yet there was some social gathering. Uh, and you know, I've been very critical of, of <laughs> sort of mm. lockdown rules, but the idea being that the government was requiring these strict lockdowns on social mm. gatherings, but then they were actually hosting some parties. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was really the turning point for Boris Johnson. That was when the tide turned, partly because he had presented himself very much as a populist himself. Then what happened was his government enacted these restrictions. There were fairly serious restrictions on your ability to attend any kind of social gatherings. Mm -hmm. And it emerged that Johnson himself had broken the rules. He was actually fined by the police, albeit the modest sum of £50, <laughs> for his conduct. But really, I think the hypocrisy was the issue there. Once that scandal emerged, then quite understandably, you had members of the British public come out and say, you know, we weren't able to go in and visit my grandmother when she was dying, or yeah. we weren't able to attend a funeral or a wedding. But here you are partying. Yeah. Meanwhile, they were doing their own thing. Yeah. And so that uh, element of double standards, I think, was very politically damaging. That's, in, that's impressive, honestly. I mean, this level of thing that the fact that this resulted in in his resignation that the people were so outraged and called out this hypocrisy and they were actually able to get rid of him for that, that I don't think that would happen in America yeah I think we were we were talking about this seems it is literally foreign but it seems foreign to us because this kind of thing would not necessarily sink no. a US political figure in this day and age it only I mean, might last a couple of days in the news right period. there would be so much covering for the figure by yep. their own political tribe and by their loyalists and whatever media tribe is is their ally you know yeah. what what is the different dynamic in the UK mm. where is there there actually is a lot of holding your own or more so holding your right. own sides person accountable. accountable yeah I mean I think there's a few important components to that and I think it's a great question one is that while media in the UK of course has some uh, ideological cross currents within it you don't really have um, networks waving the flag for a particular party or a particular cause in the way that they do here. Um, as to the specifics of the dynamics with Boris Johnson and his own party, the fact that it's a parliamentary system does change a lot. I mean, Boris Johnson is prime minister because he's the leader of the Conservative Party. Right. And if the Conservative Party changes its leader, as they're about to do, a different person becomes prime minister. And we've seen this play out a lot. It's not at all unique to Boris Johnson. Mm. Theresa May, his right. predecessor, was removed in similar circumstances. Margaret Thatcher, who had won three general elections, was removed in, in broadly similar circumstances. And just one final point that I'd, I'd mention, um, in Britain as in America, of course politicians are concerned about their own survival and their own political fortunes. The Conservatives had lost recently a couple of what in Britain are called by-elections, we would call them special elections, mm -hmm. including one that had been in a very safe Conservative mm -hmm. seat. So I think then Conservative MPs saw the writing on the wall to some degree. So they see that Johnson has become a liability right. and that this could make the party, this could stop losses, this could make the party more popular if they deal with this internally and have a new leader. That's what you're saying. That's the theory. Now, Boris Johnson's loyalists would argue that he has actually been an effective vote winner for all his other foibles and idiosyncrasies. Yeah. And in fact, in the clip that you mentioned, he talked about his mandate 
which was a reference to the 2019 general election. At that time, he had just taken over from Theresa May. Right. There was a general election held, and the Conservatives won a, a thumping majority in that election. But like you said, there's been a series of sc scandals, right? Mm. So they didn't just decide to do this out of thin air. This is the result of watching, okay, mm. the tides are turning. It seems like they made a pretty, a pretty strong strategical move, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you make a good point that it really wasn't this scandal in isolation. Right. I mean, if Boris Johnson had been sailing along, you know, peacefully and right. in a strong political position, then something like this probably wouldn't have led to his resignation. Right. But you do get this um, accretion of scandals with him, right. and that has ultimately proven politically fatal. Any idea about who has the inside track to be his replacement? I, it's going to be a fascinating process. I mean, Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, is one name that I've heard. Uh, Penny Mordaunt, who used to be Defence Secretary, would be more of a compromise choice. We should say without getting too deep into the weeds of it, this is quite a complicated process. It goes first to Conservative MPs and then goes out to the Conservative Party membership in the country. Wow, well, color me impressed. <laughs> You're just of, impressed that I'm someone so, was held accountable. Oh, I'm so impressed. I love it. I'm uh, like, who is how they doing it over there? Uh, <laughs> so this will be, uh, will be this will be going on for a while, is what you're saying. Uh, we won't have a new prime minister tomorrow. We won't. Approximately six weeks is okay. the general rule yeah. of thumb. Okay. Right. Well, Niall, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Good to be here. And we'll have more Rising right after this. Stay with us. Business Insider reports that Elon Musk and his 36-year-old Neuralink executive Siobhan Zillis are the parents of eight-month-old twins. They were born weeks before his second child with Grimes, uh, which was also a secret for a while. Musk now has nine known children and said this on Twitter. This was a funny one, that he's doing my best to help the underpopulation crisis. Uh, a collapsing birth rate is the biggest danger civilization faces by far. And he wishes his for everyone to have as many children as he is having. Yes. So, there, there is uh, a correction on this. Um, he does have 10 kids. He did have one that passed away in Nevada. Right. His oldest uh, son passed away. So that was his first ten, child, so right? That was, oh, that was his first. Yes. And then he went on to have twins that are 18 years old. Um, and one of them made news recently because she transitioned from male to female. And then uh, he has a set of triplets as well. And then one with Grimes, he had a, a boy that had a name I cannot pronounce. Do we know the name of how to pronounce the boy? That this was is the XAEA12. Yeah. Sure can't. I, yeah. I sure can't say it. It's like, I, I think it's like Ash something. Like uh, I think it's, there is like an actual pronunciation to it. And then he had a baby girl with Grimes as well, but through surrogate. And that was, they had broken up. Then they had the baby via surrogate. Oh, they, they had were, another baby? I mean, they Grimes? have two now. Yeah, they have two now. They had a girl. So that was his oh. first girl. He has, he's just made a ton of boys. Oh, wow. He's then, really pledged Nick Cannon's fraternity. Nick Cannon also having an astronomical number of, yeah. of children. Yes. <laughs> How many does he have now? He Child? Has, I think it's like eight or I, something. And, and there's some on the way. And there he, right, are some it, currently he on the way. He has a lot of them. I'll look on Wikipedia. He has a lot of them but, on the way right now. Yeah, Nick Cannon has, has, has a baby every other women. day. Yeah, I don't think with Elon, though, it sounds to me like most of this is done via like procedure, like IVF-style mm -hmm. procedure or something like that. That is what happened with his wife, Justine. He had the triplets and the twins via, like, uh, I, I don't know if that's been confirmed, but I think people suspect that it was via some sort of um, procedure, IVF or something. Oh. Same thing with Grimes. It seems that he went through, I mean, obviously with the surrogate, 
that shows that there was some sort of procedure. And it seems like maybe even with these twins that have been born, that that also was done in a similar fashion because the children had different, the way we know about this is the kids had different last names and she went to change the last names to Elon's, uh, to Musk. And so when she went to file for that, so when they were born, they were not given Musk Mm -hmm. as a last name, which kind of, which leads us to believe that these children were born somehow via maybe surrogate or procedure. Aren't you more likely to have twins and triplets, et cetera, when you're doing surrogacy or, you know, other things like that? So he's had twins and triplets. So I I would think And now another set of twins. Right. So those are are always likely to be those alternative birth methods, I think. We know about the 10 kids, but there's an 11th alleged child. Another child. 11th alleged child, and that is with Amber Heard. So (laughs) what happened was uh, Amber Heard last year had a baby girl named Unag Page. I want to say her, yeah, O-O-N-A-G-H is how you spell her name. So she had her on April 8th, and she came out and announced it last year saying, I had a baby, I was going to keep this private, but I've decided to come out with it. And she said in her statement, four years ago, I decided to take it, you know, basically take uh, matters into her own hands and decide when she wanted to have a baby. Well, four years earlier, she was dating Elon Musk. And over the last couple of years, there were some reports. Let me see when this report came out. The report that Elon was actually um, in a legal battle battle with Amber Heard over frozen embryos. He was trying to get custody of the embryos. And that that uh, legal battle came out as a thing that was going on. And then Amber Heard has a baby and says, four years ago, I decided that I wanted to maybe have a kid. And that was the year she was with Elon Musk. So oh boy. it stands to Amber reason don't need that- no more press. I, I find it surprising she even bothered to tell us that. I, I would think Amber would do her best to keep herself out of the news. Well, she this was a year ago. No, but this even then, they have been on Amber for a little while, right? She Amber. didn't mention the baby at the trial, I don't think, did she? I, w- I would hope not. Maybe they wouldn't need to. I mean, the baby was born last year and everything with Johnny Depp right. and whatnot was was like 2016. And right. But maybe prior, as like a, right? just to, just to get sympathy kind of vote, like I'm a, oh. you know, a new mother kind of thing. I don't know. Yeah. But maybe if she brought that up, then they would bring up. And didn't your didn't the, the person whose sperm was used for these embryos fight you for those embryos and you still used it, even though he said, no, he didn't want you to use them. So he, he I, fought her and lost. I mean, it's, I don't know if he actually, there, there, it was just a report yeah. that someone had come out. It was um, a, apparently, I'm trying to read the, the report, but there was a former boss of Amber's sister, Whitney Herniquez, claimed that the ex-couple had been involved in a legal proceeding due to a disagreement over frozen embryos. So it's a rumor, but the rumor mm. has backing because now there's a baby, an actual baby. And she even said when she announced the baby that four years earlier, which was 2017 when she was with right. Elon Musk that year, <laughs> that she did. So it all adds up to being well, truth. Well, if there was a legal battle kid. and she won, I'm impressed. If you beat a billionaire in court, I'm, I am color me impressed. I can't give her grief on that one. Well, we're still yeah, waiting to find know. out if uh, Elon will have his 12th child. Uh, Twitter is <laughs> the most difficult, <laughs> tantrum-prone, uh, misbehaving child of all. But uh, <laughs> sounds like he has his hands full, but he does have however many billion like, dollars it is. He can, to, he can uh, afford it. We can't he can say he can't it. afford it. And his other kids are older now. I mean, his mm-hmm. twins are 18. And his triplets are fa- are not far behind, and they're like 15 or something. Didn't along they all those visit lines, the Pope so. recently? I think I saw a photo of Elon with the Pope and some of his kids. I'm not sure which ones. 
I don't know, but I'll give it to him. He's consistent. The guy has been calling for a long time about the yes. population crisis of the earth. He's been saying the, the one of the real issues is that we're going to lose. We're, we're having a population crisis. We need more people. So he's consistently doing his part and he can afford 100 more. And so maybe he will father more. And who knows? I mean, people are making a scandal out of this Grimes and this woman, you know, that he just had the twins with that works for Neuralink. They're making a big scandal out of it. Like maybe he cheated or he was sleeping with both women. I don't it doesn't really it's not haven't clear they said if they had a romantic I feel like they have an unconventional all. relationship. Right. Dynamic, Didn't right? they say they were, I don't know if they said they were open or something, but they have a fluid kind yeah. of. I don't know how they well, got back together. And, well, it Grimes right. and Elon. I don't know. Right. I think Grimes and him had a romantic relationship. Well, they but did. I don't know but... if he, right. But with this other woman, it's unclear if he did or not. Um, or if he was just saying, sure, I'll help you out and let's have some babies. Mm. Like, I like babies. I'll give you, you know, <laughs> you want babies. I got the thing you need for babies. Like, I've done this a few times before. So, you know, maybe that's what happened. I don't know. But um, I don't In think In the future, a everyone's going to be part South African because of the Elon Musk <laughs> bloodline coming to He's dominate. like Genghis Khan, right? <laughs> like, I think... All of us Asians, they claim that all of us are like a little bit related or one out of every four of us is like related to Genghis Khan somewhere <laughs> along the line, like, like every Asian on the planet. So, yeah, he's mm. pop. Well, he's colonizing Mars. Maybe he's preparing for the future. That's right. <laughs> First colonizing Earth, then Mars. Uh, very interesting. <laughs> all right. Well, tomorrow on Rising, we will hand off the baton, as always, to Ryan Grimm and Emily Jashinsky for Rising Fridays. I've had a great time with you all this week. Brianna Joy Gray will be back with you next week. Thank you guys so much for watching. And be sure to check out our podcast. If you want to listen to us down, uh, you can download us when you're on the go. You can do that. Thank you guys so much for being here. Olaimi, thank you so much for being here this week. This was a lot of fun. Yes. And we will see you guys um, next week. Bye-bye. Next week. Till then.